Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Peter Schiff Show. When I recorded my last podcast on Friday, in fact, it was a video blog, so you can actually see as well as hear me if you are watching on my YouTube channel, The Shift Report. But when I recorded uh, that last message, I mentioned the fact that everybody was excited about the market reacting positively to the good news, right? The good jobs report that came out, which, of course, is not nearly as good as everybody thinks. That was the subject of that last podcast. But people were happy that the good news wasn't bad news for the market because the stock market didn't sell off. And if you remember, what I said is that people were celebrating prematurely because just because there wasn't a immediate reaction to the downside in the stock market, I said that doesn't mean there's not going to be a delayed reaction. In fact, I thought that given the fact that the Dow had rallied about 2,000 points off of the lows and the only reason we had that big rally was because we got a bad jobs report the, early, uh, the month earlier. And that caused people to think the Fed wasn't going to raise rates. And it was the fact that the Fed wasn't about to raise rates that sent the market up 2,000 points. And if you remember, on my podcast, the minute the Fed, we, the minute we had that bad jobs report, I said we were going to have a huge rally in the stock market, but I didn't think that we would make a new high, but that I thought we'd have a huge rally. And that's exactly what happened. But it didn't make any sense that everybody would put that rate hike back on the table, yet the market would not surrender those gains, right? And in fact, I read a Wall Street Journal piece this morning that said it was like 97% of the economist surveys expect the Fed to raise rates in December. And I remember that survey was similar 
uh, about a month or so before the September meeting, when everybody was certain they were going to raise. But by the time the meeting uh, came around, most people realized that they weren't going to raise. And now the same economists are just as confident that the rate hike is coming in December. So I was thinking, well, if that's the case, why is the market still up here? Why doesn't the market sell off? And I said, you know, it's going to sell off. It's just going to take a couple of days for it to happen. And of course, it's already done. Here we are Thursday. We're four days into this trading week, and we're down more than 450 points. We were down 250 points today alone. Uh, that was the second triple-digit loss of the week. But so far, it's 450 points, and it's not looking too good uh, for Friday. But also, I've been talking about the retail numbers. In fact, I, I did this interview on um, on CNBC on the you know I'm not on CNBC.com, not the actual network. They haven't had me on that network all year. Last time I was on was about 11 months ago with Rick Santelli, and that's because he invited me on personally. And in fact, if you want to go back to the time before that I was on with CNBC, it was a few months earlier, also with Rick Santelli. The last time I was on CNBC without Rick Santelli was, you know, not, not quite two years ago. That's how long it's been since they've actually let me on their air. Of course, I have been on Fox Business uh, many times uh, during that period, but CNBC hasn't invited me. But I've been on CNBC Asia and CNBC Europe many times. Uh, but in any event, uh, CNBC ran an article about my appearance because I did say that I thought that the retailers were going to have a horrible Christmas. I didn't think we were going to get uh, the strong retail sales that people expect. And I thought that would result in layoffs, uh, you know, late, late, you know, towards the end of the year, early next year, most likely uh, in the retailers, uh, because they weren't going to uh, have the strong sales that they were hoping for. And there was a big inventory build. Uh, people were gearing up for a Merry Christmas, and I didn't think they were going to have one. And of course, the headlines are about Peter Schiff says people are going to have a horrible Christmas, right? It's like I'm this, the Grinch that wants to steal Christmas. But I didn't say that individual families or people will have a horrible Christmas. They're just not going to buy as many gifts. You know, maybe they can have a more an enjoyable Christmas where they're not going deeper into debt to buy stuff that they can't afford and don't need. When I talked about a bad Christmas, I was talking about for the retailers, people who are hoping to make all this money selling uh, things to Americans that they can't afford and that they have to go into debt to buy. Right. And so far, that prediction looks like it's coming true. You know, I er I mentioned in earlier podcasts the uh, bad earnings, the sales numbers that came out of Walmart, right? Walmart is the no largest retailer. That's where America shops. The stock is at multi-year lows. They have bad earnings. Also, I think on my last podcast, I talked about the bad earnings that came out of Men's Warehouse. And in particular, their subsidiary that, that, that sells men's suits, Joseph E. Banks. You know, buy a pair of socks, we'll give you the entire uh, inventory for free, right? Whatever their ads were. Uh, and I speculated, well, of course, you know, men don't need to buy suits because they don't have jobs. So why do they need to buy suits? Well, since then, in the last week, we have got more earnings that come, came out from retailers. Uh, earlier this week, we got Macy's, horrible numbers out of Macy's. Macy's stock is now down 40% in the last two months. Terrible numbers for Macy's. And today, after the market closed, uh, we got Nordstrom's. Bad numbers, horrible numbers, way below estimates, and they guided down. The stock is down 15 16% after hours, multi-year lows. So think about this. We're getting Walmart, 
which is, you know, the mass uh, retailer where everybody, you know, is shopping that's very, that's on a budget, right? They had horrible numbers. Then you have probably the largest department store, Macy's, which is, you know, not high end, but higher end, kind of mid-market, nicer stuff, right? More expensive stuff than Walmart. They had horrible numbers. And then you have Neiman Marcus, which is, you know, the high end, probably the biggest high end retailer in the country. They have horrible numbers, too. It's across the board. Weak, weak sales. This is the great economy. This is what the Fed has been waiting seven years for. And now they're going to raise rates. You know, the fact that the Fed is data dependent is laughable because the entire time the Fed has been data dependent, the data that they supposedly depend on has gotten worse. See, they weren't really data dependent. They never were because it never mattered what the data was because they never had an intention of raising rates. They were just trying to delay it. So they claimed that they were data dependent because if they actually raise rates based on this horrible data, then they were never data dependent. They were just delaying. And they just felt they backed themselves into a corner and they're going to have to raise rates. But you know what? If the markets keep selling off this way, they're not going to raise rates, right? And, you know, the commodity prices, copper hit a six-month low today. Oil prices almost back down to the lows, not quite, back down into 42s. Gold did hit a new low for the year. Intraday managed to rally back, had a pretty nice, it was only down a couple of bucks, but it was down over 10 at one point. And the dollar, which was higher this morning, finished broadly lower on the day, uh, lower against the euro, down almost 1% uh, against the Australian dollar. You know, they had a strong jobs report, much stronger than ours in Australia. But interestingly enough, nobody in Australia believes it. Everybody is saying, oh, this is, they're cooking the books. There's no way we created all these jobs. Too bad we don't have that kind of skepticism here in America, right? At least in Australia, they're a little skeptical of their government numbers. We just accept it like uh, the government is like Moses and just brought those numbers down on from Mount Sinai, you know, carved into some tablets, right? No, I mean, we just accept everything that the government says. So based on what's happening, based on what's happening with commodities, you know, that gives the government Uh, An excuse to say, well, you know, we're worried about inflation not being high enough with these commodity prices coming down. Right. So everybody thinks the Fed's going to raise rates and commodity prices go down. The markets go down and now the Fed can't raise rates because, oh, well, now we're worried about the markets. We're worried that inflation isn't high enough. It's the same old song and dance. But, you know, even though everybody was expecting a rate hike in September, by the time the September meeting rolled around by that morning, very few people expected it. And the same thing might happen again in December, right? Everybody expects a December rate hike now because it's still a month away. But by the morning of the decision, maybe by then, very few people will expect a rate hike in December because all this bad economic data would have come out between now and then. And maybe the stock market will be all the way back down where it was. Because as I said last week, what is going to stop the stock market from going down? The only thing that can do it is the Fed. And if the Fed is pretending they're going to raise rates, there's no stopping the market from falling. The Fed has to take that rate hike off the table. And eventually, I think they're going to have to take it off there permanently. They just can't keep teasing. It's on and off, on and off, right? And I think eventually it's going to be QE4. That's going to be the only thing that's going to stop this market eventually when it really starts to decline. And if they actually do raise rates in December, well, then the market's going to tank. And then what are they going to do? Are they going to call off the rate hike? Then it's going to be obvious that they're beholden to the markets. That's why it's so dangerous. That's one of many reasons why it's so dangerous that the Fed hikes rates. And in fact, I just wrote a commentary that you guys should read on my website at Shift Report 
where I reference the shadow rate. Because if you actually look at tightening, tightening began about 18 months ago when the Fed began tapering. Because the Fed's monetary policy is not just about rates. It also involved quantitative easing and forward guidance. And so when the Fed began tapering, right, they were tightening. And when they began talking about raising rates, that talk was the equivalent of tightening monetary conditions as the markets braced for the hikes. So if you trace the tightening from the day the shadow rate started to rise, the Fed has been tightening for 19 months. It's been tightening for a long time. That's why the economy is rolling over. That's why the stock market is rolling over. And everybody who thinks, well, you know, we don't have to worry about the market because the market normally doesn't sell off. You, you get 12 months to, to 24 months, one to two years, a window between the Fed first starting to hike and when the market rolls over or when the economy rolls over. Well, that's be, well, we've already started hiking. If the Fed hikes in December, it's not going to be the first hike. We're going to be 19 months into the cycle. And, you know, given how weak this recovery has been and the enormity of the stimulus that has been required to produce the weakest recovery ever, if the Fed removes that stimulus completely, this this is going to be a worse than normal reaction in the stock market, especially since the market is more overvalued uh, than it normally is and its companies are more loaded up with debt. And I think the economy is going to respond. The recession is going to happen quicker and be even deeper than what we've seen in previous tightening cycles. You know, more evidence of the weakening of the economy, and I've spoken about this before, but there was a new survey again that was just released uh, today uh, showing that the number of millennials, young Americans still living with their parents is at a record high. And in fact, I posted an article about this on my Facebook page, specifically about women. It was a Bloomberg article, uh, and the number of young women, and this is between, I think it was the ages of 18 and 34, something like that. Uh, the percentage living with their parents or other family members, maybe it could be a grandparent or an aunt or uncle, I guess, but the percentage is the highest it's been in like 70 years, 70 years. And the interesting thing about this article is in the very first sentence, it says, oh, but don't worry. This is not a sign of a problem in the economy, right? Bloomberg constantly wants to spin the economy as if it was good. So they, they wrote this story about all these young women living with their parents. And they said, but don't worry. It's not because there's anything wrong with the economy. They, they just like living with their parents and their parents just enjoy having their kids uh, live with them uh, a little bit longer. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And in fact, I saw there was a b debate on CNBC earlier today. They discussed this topic and both of the people said that it's not a reflection of a bad economy and we shouldn't look at these statistics and jump to the erroneous conclusion that you know, the economy is bad. And that's why all these people are still living with their parents, which is complete nonsense. Of course, that's why they can't. Uh, you think 30 year olds want to live with their parents? No, they don't. They want, they want, they, they don't want to live. It's the last place they want to live is with their parents, but they can't afford it. And in fact, a lot of the parents, by the time your kids are 30, you don't, you don't want these guys living with you anymore. It's not like they're little kids and they're all cute and stuff. No, I mean, they got their own lives. They're grown, right? I mean, you don't want your empty nest crowded with your 30-year-old kids, right? This is all nonsense. But here's what these guys were saying uh, on the CNBC interview. One, one person 
said that, hey, you know, this is all about delayed marriage. And in fact, the Bloomberg article pointed this out, too. They said, well, kids, women are living with their parents longer because they're getting married later. Well, that's been true for a long time. This is a sharp increase that we've just had in uh, women living uh, with their parents. Uh, so it's, you know, and the, the trend towards later marriages has been going on for a while. But of course, a lot of that has to do with economics. People aren't getting married because they can't afford it. I mean, weddings are expensive, number one. Uh, but also, if you got two broke people, they can't afford to get married. They can't afford to have kids. A lot of people have, get married to have kids. But if you're too broke to have kids, then why get married in the first place? Especially when both the potential bride and groom are each loaded up with student loans. And in fact, when one person has student loans and the other person doesn't, the last thing you want to do is get married to the person who has student loans. In many cases, having student loans is worse than having a venereal disease. It's like worse than having herpes. I mean, you tell, you tell your boyfriend or girlfriend that you got $100,000 worth of student loans. Where's that relationship going? You think that's going to lead to marriage? I mean, people are going to, I mean, that's a scary proposition to marry into that kind of debt. In fact, I, I remember reading these stories that that's, people are embarrassed. Kid, young men or women, are, they, they're afraid to tell their, their significant other about the debt. It's too scary, right? So, th th so this is why people are delaying their marriage. It's part of the economy. And now one of the persons on a CNBC said that, oh, we don't have to worry about this because, you know, the reason that people are living at home longer is because they started staying in school longer. So they're getting degrees. They're getting advanced degrees. So all this is good news, right? Because when they finally do leave the nest, well, they're going to earn all this extra money because they're going to have better jobs because they have these degrees. I mean, give me a break. They're not going to have better jobs. They're probably going to have worse jobs, except they're going to have worse jobs and they're going to have student debt. So some of these kids may never leave. They're waiting for their parents to die so they can take over the house. Although they pro the, the problem might be they got a reverse mortgage. So when their parents die, there is no house, right? And they're not going to inherit anything. I mean, this is terrible news that is coming out. And, and talk about housing. This is what the same person was saying about, oh, this is good news because, you know, kids are getting college degrees, you know, so they have to live at home while they're getting these valuable degrees. And then when they leave, they're going to land these plum jobs, right? But they also talked about housing. And she said, well, here's how it's changing the housing market. See, normally people buy a starter home, right? You buy your first home. They, the realtors call it a starter home. But then you trade up, right? You buy your, the house you really want, right? After you buy your starter home, you get your foot in the door, but then you buy a bigger house. And what she was saying is that, well, since, you know, these people are staying, millennials are staying at home with their parents, they're not leaving when they're 18. They're leaving when they're 35 or whatever. So but when they leave, they're going to buy a bigger house. They're going to skip the starter home and go right to, you know, their dream home. I mean, does this person have no clue? I mean, here's how it works uh, in realtor land, right? <laughs> and this is part of the pyramid, the Ponzi scheme that is the U.S. housing market. So you buy your starter home. And then when the market goes up, you roll those profits into your bigger house, right? So let's say you buy your starter home with, you know, 3% down, 4% down, you buy this $150,000 house, and then it go, it doubles in value and sell it for $300,000. You now have $150,000 as a down payment on that $700,000 house, right? So the down payment comes from the profits on the starter home. But, of course, you end up with a bigger mortgage, which is the problem, right? You know, because you, and you don't have your equity. But 
Here's what this CNBC guest didn't understand. If you never buy the starter home, then you don't parlay the down payment for the bigger home. How are these millennials that are trying to live at home on their low-paying jobs, paying down their student debt, how are they going to save up a down payment for the dream house? They can't. So all that's going to happen is by the time they get out of their parents' homes, they're going to be buying the same starter homes that people used to buy when they were 15 years younger, if they can ever even afford those. I also wanted to talk a little bit on this podcast about the presidential debates that were on Fox Business on Wednesday. And, you know, I didn't even get to see the debates live. If you wonder why I didn't tweet about them, I was on an airplane. I had, had given a, a, a talk and I was headed home. And so I happened to be on the airplane for the exact time period uh, that they had these debates. So I finally got around to watching it the other day. And I was very pleased to see uh, Rand Paul uh, do so well. In fact, I, I do believe that he won that debate. I think he was the winner for the first time, you know, the n- number of debates they had. And by the way, this, this Fox Business debate was hands down better than the one that CNBC had the week earlier. Uh, so they did a much better job, uh, much better questions, uh, and a far more entertaining debate to watch and more relevant, I think, for the voters than the fiasco at, uh, at, at, at CNBC. But Rand did a great job. Um, and I think he stood out. I think he made some good points. And I think he's going to uh, move up in the polls, which really is uh, the definition of winning, right? It's like, who gets the biggest bump in the polls? And of course, I think Rand, uh, you know, they, they have everybody seated or standing, right, at a podium based on you know, how popular they are in the polls. And of course, Rand was all the way over at the end. So he had, he was polling at the lowest, I think of the eight candidates, uh, maybe Rand and Carly Fiorina were at either end of the, the low, the low voters, I think. But I think Rand is, is going to get a bigger bounce from this debate uh, than anybody else. And hopefully that momentum can continue because he is drawing a contrast because everybody else up there, you know, wants to spend more money on the military and we're already broke. You know, uh, and, you know, and the whole idea that, well, if we don't go even deeper into debt to spend even more money, that somehow we're not going to be safe. Look, we can have what we spend on the military and we're still going to be safe. Right. Rand made the point that we spend more on military every year than the next 10 largest countries combined, combined. So if we cut our military budget in half and that's not even something Rand's talking about doing, but even if we did that. You know, we'd still be outspending anybody else. So who, I mean, no, nobody would mess with us. The problem is going to be when we're completely bankrupt. Then we're not going to have any money. How do we pay for our military now? We borrow it. What's going to happen when we can't borrow anymore because nobody will lend to us? What's going to happen when the dollar collapses and we can't afford to supply the troops? We can't afford uh, the gasoline to move the troops around. We can't afford you know, to supply them, to feed them, to pay them. We can't afford their salaries, right? What's going to happen then? Then we're going to be in complete chaos. See, that's when we may actually be vulnerable. We let ourselves go bankrupt. So Rand is right by pointing out that the debt is a bigger enemy than whoever we're supposedly fighting in the Middle East. And if we don't do something about that and we completely collapse, remember how the Soviet Union was a big military power? What happened there? Right. They couldn't afford to maintain their military because they went bankrupt. Well, we're just doing the same thing. We're just behind them. But we're, we're you know, we're following in their lead. But one of the other things that you'll notice 
Rand doesn't spend his time doing. And everybody else talks about this. Of course, Trump is the leader, but also uh, uh, you, you've got Ted Cruz talking a lot about it, is the illegal immigrants. And, you know, as if all of our problems or most of our problems somehow can be blamed on illegal immigrants. And I hate this. This is fear-mongering. This is scapegoating. Uh, and I wish that this wasn't even an issue. But unfortunately, so many Republican voters have bought into this nonsense that if we can only get rid of the illegals, the problems are going to go away. I mean, first of all, during the last part of the 19th century, 1880s, 1890s, the early part of the 19th century, 1900, 1910, 1920, right? The number of immigrants that came to America each year as a percentage of our population was much higher than it is today. Even if you count illegals, right? All the legal immigrants plus all the illegal immigrants, we had more immigrants coming in back then than we do now. And they weren't a source of, of problems. It didn't, they didn't weaken the economy. They strengthened the economy. Now, what they're talking about in these debates, Ted Cruz was saying, oh, you know, they're driving down wages, right? Immigrants are coming into America, they're taking our jobs, and they're driving down our wages. That's just not true. First of all, they're not taking anybody's jobs. There is unlimited amount of work. There's not some limited number of jobs, and if one person has one, then somebody else is unemployed. There's no limit to the number of jobs that can be created. The more people that are here, the more companies can be created. A lot of immigrants become employers. A lot of them start companies, right? There's a lot of entrepreneurs who are immigrants. We didn't have any problem. We had all these immigrants coming in 1900. There wasn't any unemployment. They got jobs right away. It didn't matter how many people came here. Jobs were created for them because they were there to do the work. They're, you know, and they're also consumers. They're producers and consumers. So you, you, you don't have a finite number of jobs. And if an immigrant has a job, it doesn't mean that some native-born American just lost that job. Also, the idea that immigrants are driving down wages, that's just not true. First of all, let's assume that because there are immigrants that come in, Americans can hire immigrants to do things at a lower price than they would have to pay if the immigrants weren't here. Why is that bad? Right, let's say we're getting an influx of skilled workers, carpenters, plumbers, tailors, automobile mechanics, people that know a trade, right? Because Americans don't really learn trades. We just go, we just go to college and, and study philosophy, right? But people actually have trades. And let's say we get a bunch of immigrants coming in. And let's say, you know, your sink is all clogged up and you want to call a plumber. If there's more plumbers here and a lot of them are illegal and because there's more plumbers, you can hire a plumber for less money. Is that a bad thing? If the cost of hiring a plumber goes down, is that bad? No, that's good. Because right? that means if you pay less money to hire your plumber, you have more money to spend someplace else. Right. So to the extent that immigrants help lower the cost of doing business, that they bring down costs, they bring down prices. And that benefits everybody, including the immigrants themselves, because, hey, there might be an immigrant who also uh, needs, uh, has his uh, sink clogged and needs to call a plumber. Maybe that immigrant isn't a plumber himself, right? So it's a good idea if we have more workers in the economy. But what people don't understand is there's a lot of immigrants that are coming to America and doing jobs that native-born Americans won't do. They don't want to do it. They'd rather go on welfare. So the only way you're, these jobs get done is because there are illegals here doing them. And if those illegals weren't here, the jobs wouldn't get done. And you know what? A lot of these companies wouldn't exist anymore. 
And so a lot of the higher paying jobs would go away because without the lower paying jobs, the higher paying jobs aren't possible. Or think about all the women, let's say in California, that have young children that go to work and that have uh, nannies or housekeepers that watch their kids. Most of these housekeepers in California are illegal. Now, if California working women had to hire legal Americans, they couldn't afford it. They don't work, you know, be, because it's it's so expensive to hire a legal, a legal worker because they're not going to work uh, for what the illegals work for. They'd rather get welfare. They'd rather get food stamps. They'd rather get all these housing benefits. I mean, you have to pay somebody 50, 60,000 a year to get them to be a housekeeper if they're legal. But if they're illegal and you just give them room and board, they'll work a lot cheaper. And so if it wasn't for all the illegals who are willing to do work that, um, that you know, native-born Americans won't do, many of the women in California that have $100,000 a year jobs would have to quit those jobs to watch their kids. Because if they had to pay somebody $40,000, $50,000 a year to do it, after taxes, there's not enough money left over to pay the cost. You can't deduct your housekeeper you know, on your tax return, even though you need that housekeeper to watch your kids. So all sorts of economic activity takes place. All sorts of higher income jobs are there because of the labor of, of illegals. And of course, if it was easier for a lot of these illegals to come here legally, they would do it. But the problem is you've got a big bureaucracy that makes it harder for people to come. Now, look, do illegal immigrants commit crimes? Of course they do. So do legal immigrants. So do natural-born Americans. Most of these crimes are drug-related, right? So why is this going on? It's not because of immigration. It's because of the ridiculous drug laws. So if you don't want illegal immigrants to commit crimes, then reform the drug laws, end the war on drugs, and the crime's going to go away. It's not an immigration problem. It's a drug law problem. Same thing with welfare. Are there illegals who abuse the welfare state? Absolutely. Are there people coming here and, and are we having to support them? You bet. But we're having to support people who are here legally too. And as far as I'm concerned, I object to all these welfare programs. I, I, I don't feel better knowing my welfare, my tax money is supporting uh, a native-born American who doesn't want to work. I don't care. I don't care if they came illegally over the border or if they were born here. I object to it. I object to people stealing money from me regardless of whether or not they came to this country legally or not. So this is a welfare state problem. End the welfare. Don't focus your anger on the illegal immigrants who are coming here for the handout. Focus your anger on the idiotic government programs that supply the, ha the handout. Turn off that welfare magnet, right? And then the only people that will come to America will be the people that want to work. And believe me, we benefit from that. If anybody comes here and works, we benefit. And if they're going to sell their labor cheap, we benefit from that, too, because we get to buy that labor cheap, right? It's lower cost. Labor is a cost of production. And if labor costs are lower, we can produce things for less, and we all can buy more things and have a higher standard of living. This is a fact that nobody wants to acknowledge, right? But if you could actually wave a magic wand and every illegal would just disappear, we could do it for free. I mean, God knows what it's going to cost to do it the Trump way. And I know one thing. Mexico is not going to be paying for that wall if, if, if Trump could build it. You know, if you saw Saturday Night Live, part of the skit, this Mexican official shows up and hands, you know, Trump a check to pay for the wall. Yeah, that ain't going to happen. Maybe in a Saturday Night Live skit, we're going to have to pay for that wall, not Mexico. Right. And who knows what it'll cost to build it, maintain it, round up all these illegals and get rid of them. And by the way, if you care about civil rights and that's something where Rand is strong, look, 
We lose all sorts of civil rights in the war on drugs. We're going to lose a lot more civil rights if we have to round up, you know, ferret out, deport all these undocumented workers. And we've already, you know, put this burden on employers. You know, employers have to do all sorts of things to make sure that they're not hiring any illegals. It costs a lot of money, and they're big fines. You can go to jail if you hire illegals. Uh, You know, it's not like American employers have enough to deal with, with other regulations and taxes, to make them immigration officers. You know, if you run a business now, not not only are you an unpaid tax collector— for the government. Not only do you have to, you know, do all this civil rights stuff and, you know, but you're also an unpaid immigration officer. You know, you've got to ferret out uh, anybody who's here illegally. But we're losing all sorts of individual rights uh, to try to get rid of all these uh, illegals. But assuming we could just wave a wand and they all disappeared, cost us nothing. They were just gone. I think that the net impact on the U.S. economy would be a negative. I think the economy would be weaker. I think the average American standard of living would be lower if we got rid of all the illegals, right? Yes, would we get rid of some bad ones? Would we get rid of some criminals? Yeah, we would. But we'd get rid of a lot of productive people who are doing things and making our lives better and making our lives easier. And nobody wants to admit that because they're afraid that they're not going to get the votes of, you know, the, the wing of the Republican primary that is making this all about immigration, some kind of national, you know, pro-America, I'm a patriot, so therefore I'm anti-everybody else. I'm anti-immigration. And yes, they are breaking the law. I get it. They're coming here illegally. And you know what? If we made it easier for them to come here legally, then fewer would be breaking the law. Right. There are a lot a lot of people break laws uh, and it doesn't necessarily make them bad people. There could be bad laws. But what we should do and maybe Rand could do this and I don't know and I don't speak for him. But if one of the candidates stood up to this and said, look, this is nonsense. This is not our problem. Maybe with such a crowded field, you know, if you got so many candidates who are so anti-immigrant, you know, they can split up all that anti-immigrant vote. If there's one candidate candidate that says, look. The illegal immigrants aren't the problem. Yes, you know, we could do something about illegal immigration. We can reform the laws. But this is a panacea. It's not going to work. Here are the real problems. And here are the real solutions. This is a sideshow. That candidate could get enough votes to maybe win some of these primaries and win without the baggage. Because you know what? They're going to hang all this anti-immigration rhetoric around the Republican candidate's neck like an albatross. Right. And when the general election comes, that's going to be a big theme about how anti immigrants and it's not going to be about anti immigrants. It's going to be about trying to label the Republican nominee a racist, that all of this anti immigration is really a cover up for the fact that the Republicans are a bunch of racists. So if you have a Republican nominee that didn't adopt that party line and stood up for principles and stood against that tide, that nominee would have a much better chance of getting elected in the general election. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. 
Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold video cast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is truth in media. Recently, a novel thought is now a reality with truthinmedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, truthinmedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make truthinmedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into The Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit truthinmedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth in Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed.